0: Welcome to the Saturday Blitz podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki flying solo this week to discuss our opening moves in college football. We wondered throughout the summer whether it would actually happen. We saw the FCS kickoff recently, and this past Labor Day weekend, we got football games for better or worse. We did not get all of the football games we expected, either at the beginning of our long off season or even that we expected within the past few weeks due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic but we nevertheless did get some football and we have even more coming up this weekend with the opening of ACC play so we need to discuss some of this unfortunately John Mitchell cannot be here with us this week so sorry everybody you have to hear me this whole time but Let's get into it. You know, last weekend, to be honest, we had a lot of duds. We had a lot of games that didn't go nearly the way one might have expected. Uh, Perhaps the most notable of those was BYU's 55-3 trouncing of Navy on Labor Day evening. The Cougars went to Annapolis and simply took care of business. Zach Wilson looked great at quarterback, completing 13 of his 18 passes for 232 yards and a pair of scores. And, you know, Gunnar Romney was huge, catching four of those passes for 134 yards. So he only had four of the 13 completions, but caught more than 50% of the total yardage that flew. So... Great game for both of them. Um, Tyler Allgaier looked great as well. Uh, 14 carries for 132 yards and a pair of scores himself. So you have to wonder, where does BYU fit into this whole mix? We've been talking throughout the offseason about the fact that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 aren't playing this fall. Who knows what actually happens around that? Things are always changing daily, but... At the moment, it doesn't look like either of them will be playing. Here in State College, where I live and work, the Nittany Lions aren't playing. Uh, It obviously caused some, some sadness in the community this weekend, and, you know, will continue to do so because it means so much to the community. It means so much economically. It means so much socially. It means so much from an identity standpoint. The same fact is, though, is that we saw 333 new COVID-19 positives in testing on the University Park campus this past week. Numbers are rising because students are back on campus. Numbers are rising because we're holding in-person classes. And as numbers rise, it's going to become more and more difficult for conferences to justify continuing on playing the game as much as I love what goes on on the gridiron I understand being part of a university community that frankly there is something bigger going on than than what happens on the gridiron itself that said the Big Ten and the Pac-12 as of this moment are not playing this year a lot of the discourse goes to how many teams will the SEC get in? Will, you know, the big, you know, the power five that remain, the three of the power five that remain, will they just dominate this playoff? Um, will it be an all SEC, ACC affair if the round robin and the big 12 go sideways? You know, there's been talk about whether or not the American Athletic Conference can jump at this opportunity. And have its champion leap up and take one of those four spots in the college football playoff, but I think the way that BYU played on Monday night, we have to ask ourselves whether or not the Cougars deserve a space in this discussion as well. We haven't seen BYU string together a truly transcendent season since nineteen ninety six when they were shut out by the Bowl Alliance and relegated to the Cotton Bowl, which at the time was a tier below the truly elite bowl games. And yet at the same time, this is a BYU team that's among a rather small contingent of teams that can claim a mythical national championship. And yes, as we've discussed on previous podcasts, they're all mythical. But the thing is, is in terms of small schools, BYU is one of that Verified group that can actually claim one. They did it in 1984 in nearly unanimous fashion. They were at the top of both human polls, the coaches poll and the AP Top 25. There were a couple of computers that saw them on their way and weren't quite as impressed, but ultimately, BYU has a legitimate national championship to their name that Well, it's legitimate as a national championship can get. Could this be the year when they finally step up 36 years after the fact and earn the second at the school in Provo? Possibly. I think we need to keep our eyes on that. The one thing that obviously will go against BYU is the fact that all of their Power 5 opportunities effectively melted away when the pandemic canceled their games against the Pac-12, the Big Ten, and even the SEC. But I think that selectors are going to have to be creative this year in how they assess teams, and a 52-point takedown on the road of a Navy team that has been right there in the thick of the AAC hunt the past few years certainly will open some eyes. At the same time this weekend, you know, we saw rather lopsided results elsewhere as well. Army went, you know, opened the season one and zero at Mikey Stadium, taking down Middle Tennessee forty-two to nothing. It was an incredible shutout. That was eclipsed in some ways by Marshall's fifty-nine nothing takedown of Eastern Kentucky. All of these directional schools had a hard time; couldn't put points on the board. You know, North Texas is probably the one that had the best day among directional schools because they actually won. They won fifty-seven thirty-one 31 over FCS Houston Baptist. But at the same time, it wasn't all blowouts. Memphis had a tougher than expected go of it at home at the Liberty Bowl against Arkansas State, who figured to be a potential spoiler in the Sun Belt but I think everybody has pretty much projected the raging Cajuns of Louisiana to take that West division Arkansas State raised some questions about that at the same time we saw what life after Kenneth Gainwell looks like for Memphis and you know while it's tough for them they still have Brady White who threw four touchdown passes they had Rodriguez-Clark in the backfield, who looked great, carrying the ball 20 times for 105 yards and a touchdown. Sean Dykes looked incredible at receiver, hauled in 10 of Brady White's 26 completions for 137 yards and two of those four scores. So they have plenty of firepower. I don't think that Memphis necessarily needs to worry Another team that might, though, in the AAC is SMU. Last year, the Mustangs were the darlings of the group of five for a while there, as they continued to string together one win after another. They had a hard time of it against Texas State, though, as, you know, they only prevailed 31-24. These teams were tied 14-all at the half, and SMU barely clotted away in the third quarter there. So in the end, we look at this picture as we head into what is nominally considered week two of the college football season, though in reality we could look at this as a week zero of sorts. And we see a picture that's still fairly muddled. We see new contenders on the rise in a team like BYU, or maybe even Army this year. We see teams that f- stood fairly pat. You know, Memphis showed that they'll be okay in their post game well future. We had teams that, frankly, fell flat. Navy looked completely off their normal level. And frankly, so did SMU. So it's going to be an interesting picture with the AAC race this year. Because so many of these teams we normally think of as good or that have recently been good might have some stumbling blocks along the way. And ultimately, it could very well open the door for an independent like BYU to, you know, if they dominate every team on their schedule by 52 points, it's going to be hard for the selection committee to leave out an undefeated Cougars team. Because even if you you know factor in the level of competition there, that's just sheer dominance. And this was no lightweight midshipman team. What does that mean moving forward? It'll be really interesting to see. But when we come back from this first break, we'll talk a bit more about what's happening in week two. And how that might affect things down the road. Stay tuned. This week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody, after the break. I'm Zach Bogalki, flying solo this week, unfortunately. We just finished talking about what happened in what we're nominally calling week one. Uh, at the same time, you could probably call it a week zero, as this is really the first official time when we're going to see Power 5 teams play. We have some Big 12 teams in action this week. We have some ACC teams in action. The SEC is not due to be in play until September 26th, but we'll uh, see how much football we can get in this week. We had group of five teams kick off the season over Labor Day, and now it's time for the big boys to start playing, so to speak. Things kick off tomorrow, given that we come out with these podcasts every Wednesday, with UAB going to Miami. This is officially the first Power 5 contest of the year, and UAB comes in more warmed up at this point. They had the opportunity to kick off the season over Labor Day weekend last Thursday, to be specific, with a Week one win over FCS Central Arkansas themselves the darling of that game against Austin P in the FCS kickoff. It was a game where Spencer Brown looked great. Tyler Johnston the looked serviceable at quarterback, if not that spectacular. Given you know he completed sixty eight percent of his passes, but only threw for what was it a hundred and forty some yards. Uh, yeah, 143 yards. Had two touchdowns, but when you're completing 17 passes for only 143 yards against an FCS opponent, you have to wonder whether your quarterback situation is truly as settled as you might like. The same time, Johnston has never had to be the absolute magic maker through the air. He might have to against the Canes, however, given that Miami has been turnovers chain central the past few years, and the Hurricanes are really hoping to get the year started on a high note. This is a year where not only should the defense be decent, but given the transfer of Houston quarterback Derek King to Coral Gables and the departure of Dan Enos at offensive coordinator from Coral Gables, That addition and that subtraction could really go a long way toward fixing the issues that were there with Miami's offense in 2019. At the same time, if UAB wins this game, and they are a 14-point underdog, it will set them up not just as a group of five threat, but also a team that, if they continue running the table, could very well be in that College football playoff discussion themselves. You can't really scoff at a victory on the road against the Hurricanes, if it were indeed to happen. The same time, they still have a Conference USA schedule to get through, so let's not look too far ahead. But we get that ACC thriller on Thursday night. And then on Saturday, the ACC has a couple of conference games that just kind of get things going right out of the gate. Syracuse plays at North Carolina early. The Tar Heels are a 22-point favorite, which says as much about how high people are on UNC's chances this year in Mack Brown's second season as it does about how little they think about Dino Baber's squad now. We also have, a little bit later in the day, Duke playing at Notre Dame. In a year where Notre Dame is officially a full ACC member all of a sudden. Georgia Tech plays at Florida State. We get that Clemson-Wake Forest game later in the evening. But ultimately, you know, we also lose some games this weekend. The Big 12 is playing a couple. Arkansas State team that came closer than many expected to really making Memphis sweat last week, has to go to the Little Apple to play Kansas State. Could be an interesting game for Chris Kleiman's crew. Baylor plays Louisiana Tech at home. West Virginia gets FCS Eastern Kentucky. Iowa State is playing the raging Cajuns of Louisiana, who at the moment, are the Sun Belt West favorite. So that could be a tougher test than expected for Brock Purdy and crew. But as I said, we don't just get these great games. You know, Oklahoma and Texas are also playing. But not every Big 12 team is playing. SMU coming off their closer than expected win against Texas State lost their chance to play in the battle for the Iron Skillet against TCU when the Horned Frogs were forced to postpone this game due to too many COVID-19 positives on their roster that pushed them below the 53-man minimum and left them undermanned at several key positions. Florida International has pushed back their sports till the end of September, which means that UCF doesn't get to open the season now. The Knights are forced to watch as other teams in that group of five race get their year started, and it's going to be tough for Josh Heupel's team to start to really make waves if they can't really start to get this off the ground. They're supposed to open the season next week against Georgia Tech now, but we'll see how things go with that as situations change day by day. Marshall in East Carolina, set to play a conference USA, uh, an old conference USA thriller that's now an out-of-conference experience between uh, an AAC team in the Pirates and still a conference USA team in the Thundering Herd. That game also had to be called off. So it really begs the question, you know, we we see some big names starting to take to the field. We're going to get our first look at, you know, Trevor Lawrence. We're going to get our first look at, you know, what life at Oklahoma looks like under a guy like Spencer Rowler. We're going to see how Sam Ellinger looks at Texas against a relative patty like UTEP. We're going to see how Notre Dame actually fares playing a conference schedule. We get our first taste of that against a Duke team that comes in as a 20-point underdog, but frankly, conference play is weird. Can Notre Dame actually live up to that hype? Can North Carolina live up to their hype with Sam Howell coming out for his sophomore season? Are we going to see another year of progression for the quarterback, or will this be a sophomore slump? It'll be interesting to find out. Ultimately, though, what we get is something that's much diminished than what we expected before. If fans are allowed in the stadium, it's not going to look anything like a fully-packed college football experience does. We saw last weekend the varying moves that have been taken across the country in terms of playing football in the midst of a pandemic and the sorts of precautions that must be put into place. Will this actually work out in the long term? Again, as I mentioned in the previous segment, we're seeing cases rise at campuses across the country. As I mentioned just a moment ago, we're seeing teams have to postpone games against one another because one or the other, or both opponents, are starting to come down with too many cases to even field a full team. You know, to even have the bare minimum to play. We've seen several articles come out about this. And, you know, it's a situation where college football has its specialists. But we don't often think about who those specialists are. You know, we saw it at Kentucky last year when Lynn Bowden Jr. had to convert from wide receiver to quarterback in the Wildcat for the Wildcats. And it worked. You know, you're you're able to manipulate the situation and the scheme to get some kind of result out of that. If you don't have enough bodies to play along the offensive line, though, for instance, you significantly increase the risk of injury to everybody else on the football field. You put a tight end in at guard, for instance, or you move a defensive lineman over to offensive lineman, and just the lack of conditioning and the nuances, the footwork, you know, the little things that make up success at that position leave the player that's subbing in at risk, but it also leaves the running backs at risk, the quarterbacks at greater risk, because the protections won't be as good. It leaves the other players on the offensive line at risk who are forced to, you know, step in and assist in that situation. If you have to sub several positions along your offensive line, you're effectively screwed. So we're seeing some real issues around college football, but we're still playing these games. We still have odds coming out, as grotesque as it might feel to bet on unpaid players who are continuing to bash into one another for our edification in the midst of a pandemic. That's always been an issue, a dilemma that we college football fans are required to negotiate. But it feels so much more crass at a time like this. Yet here we are. We talk football. We love football. And football continues to matter. You know, it matters in communities that are playing the game. Throughout the South. Throughout, you know, the Great Plains of the Big 12. Even out in Provo, where people are celebrating the opportunity after a 52-point drubbing of Navy, that this could very well be the year for the Cougars to surprise everybody once again. It has indelible impacts on those communities. And teams that aren't playing are losing millions of dollars themselves, but we're also seeing businesses that depend on that foot traffic in town six, seven times a year are feeling serious pinches out of this as well, as it's piggybacking on a pandemic that itself has economic impacts. So we play. We continue to play whether it seems like the right thing or not. And we have plenty of people cajoling conferences that called off play to rethink their stance. We have people... Longing to change the minds of university presidents who are watching numbers go up on their campuses, who are watching backlash from students, from faculty, from staff about the way they're handling the reopening of campuses in the midst of a pandemic. We're seeing all of this, but ultimately we continue to play. We have 19 Power 5 teams hitting the field for the first time this year, in this second weekend of September. We have 42 teams total playing in these FBS games, including several FCS teams that are serving as fodder. But you know, when we come back, I want to talk about quickly what this means for fans who don't have anything to root for, because... While some of them are just waiting for seasons to commence, there are millions of fans across the country who have nothing to root for this fall. So let's take a quick break, grab yourself a drink, stay tuned. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We've been talking about the college football games that have just started over the past Labor Day weekend. We're talking about the Power 5 teams that are actually getting started in this upcoming week two of the 2020 college football season. But what we need to look at now are those teams that have nothing to look forward to this season. Those fan bases whose teams have called off fall ball. As I wrote in my Sunday morning quarterback column this past weekend, I'm in that situation along with so many other fans, you know? And that's given even the fact that I have three teams that I've rooted for consistently over the years, you know? I was born in Wisconsin to a family that loves Badger sports more Subway alumni than actual alumni, but ultimately a family that's rabid about all things Wisconsin in the sports world, and that includes the Badgers. We moved to Wyoming when I was five, and by my early teenage years, I latched on to those Wyoming Cowboys teams, you know. Paul Roach and Joe Tiller were absolutely awesome at a really formative time in my life, so... You know, I had my family rooting interest and my geographic rooting interest, and then I graduated with both my bachelor's degree and my master's degree from the University of Oregon. I'm a double duck, which means ultimately I've got a third team there with my alma mater to root for. It's also a place where I worked for over five years before I even went back to school to finish my degrees, so... I have a lot of ties to that campus in Eugene. Probably more physical ties than I do to either of the previous teams I rooted for. But ultimately, by some luck of the draw, none of those three teams are playing this year. The Mountain West pulled the trigger first, shutting down their season. And then the Big Ten and the Pac-12 quickly followed suit. And so I'm 0 for 3 in teams to root for this year. It's something that millions of people across the country have to deal with. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast and have talked about plenty in previous podcasts, I'm currently at Penn State University as a PhD student in the Department of Kinesiology. And it's unbelievable. This campus is a ghost town right now. I do have to teach in-person classes on the history and philosophy of sport and physical culture under my teaching assistant position. But even then, you know, other than the students you actually see there for classes, it's not a campus community at this point. And, you know, obviously I'm not an undergraduate. I'm not out at some of the parties my wife and I drove past this weekend where you saw way more people with way less clothing than I would have wanted to hang out around at this point. But that's what undergraduates do. Schools around the country knew that was going to happen, and that's why cases are ramping up. But ultimately, I think that sort of thing is going to make it harder for teams that did call off the fall season to change their minds. We have eternal hope here from so many in the Nittany Lions faithful and the faithful of pretty much every Big Ten program, that Kevin Warren and the university presidents are suddenly going to reverse course. We've heard stories about more rapid testing, you know, possibilities in Big 12 country. But you still have public health officials in Oregon and California that really aren't letting business as usual ramp back up again. Whether or not teams can get exceptions like pro sports teams have in each of these places. You know, uh, NFL teams in California and the Portland Timbers, the MLS team in Oregon, are currently either practicing or in the MLS case are actually in the midst of a season right now. So, there could be exceptions there, but again, that just goes and pushes further toward this argument that an industry that brings in billions of dollars and they are the unpaid labor upon which all of that is built. It gets harder and harder to continue justifying these stories of amateurism if you're going to look for professional exemptions like that. Could it happen? Certainly. College sports is nothing if not notorious for being very hypocritical and contradictory to its own stances. That's college sports administration in a nutshell. And frankly, we're seeing that that's increasingly the administration of higher education more broadly. You know, the pandemic exposes things far beyond just what's happening in the athletic department. But that doesn't help people who are dealing with the loss of the team that they've been rooting for for years, for decades, for generations. There's real loss in these communities beyond just the dollars that come through with each home game. And it is something that we really need to take into account. There need to be ways for these fans to remain in their imagined communities where they're part of a larger body of like-minded souls who, for better or worse, may never see one another, may never interact with one another, but still share that common bond, that common rooting interest. That, more than anything, is what sports is all about. It's why we declare mythical national championships. It's why we get so worked up when a team gets snubbed. It's why we pour over polls so religiously, despite the fact that we know they're all always subjective. Whether it's the AP poll or the coaches voting... their assistants more likely voting or their you know SID voting or their son voting or whatever or if it's 13 12 13 college football playoff selectors sitting in a smoky room justifying the way they decided to sort teams after the fact by some ludicrous series of ever-shifting metrics We know that these things are subjective, but we still hold firm to them, because they have the power to create these narratives. And without narratives this year, what are these communities that have spent so much of their resources, so much of their energy, building their identities around college football, going to do this season? That's why you see fans so invested in whether or not the Big Ten's going to reverse its vote. Or whether or not the Pac-12 and the states in which it plays can get things turned around in time to have some semblance of a season. It's why you have national authors throwing spaghetti at the wall hoping it sticks. You know, throwing out different kinds of plans to see if we can make the college football playoff as legitimate as possible. Ultimately, legitimacy is as much what we make of it as anything else. Because there's nothing inherently legitimate within the subjective arguments of college football. It's only as legitimate as we ascribe it with legitimacy. And I think as much as somebody like Kirby Smart talks about there being no asterisks on a season, ultimately... It's not just those individuals that are in the midst of it that get to make those decisions, that get to say what does and does not get an asterisk. That's something we determine collectively, and it's something that's going to be highly contested this year, far more contested than anything we've ever seen before. Again, though, that does nothing for the millions of fans that are now going to be watching football with a purely aesthetic interest this year because they have no partisan loyalties upon which to lean. What will that do to ratings this year? Will some of these people realize that they were able to get a lot of different things done, spend more time with their family on Saturdays, and perhaps never come back? I'm going to guess that most people will be right there continuing to watch. I know, um, as painful as it might be, I I cover the sport of college football. I don't just cover those teams I love. But that's not the sake for most people. They don't root for college football. They root for... The Ducks, or the Badgers, or the Beavers, or the Cougars, or the Wildcats, or the Eagles, or the Tigers, or whatever. They don't root for a sport, they root for a program. And so this year, people will still watch. Maybe they'll become more entranced by the elements of ballet that you can watch on the field. Those sublime movements of the human body that can only be enacted by finely tuned physical specimens. Maybe they'll just stay outside and mow the lawn again this week rather than putting it off till Sunday. Who knows? Maybe they'll become more interested in NFL football and leave Saturdays behind. Who knows? Ultimately, though, for those fans like myself who are forced to follow a season without anything to celebrate themselves, it's going to be about finding ways to keep this interesting. It's going to be about the narratives that do generate around it. And it's, the legitimacy is ultimately going to come down less to how SEC coaches frame it than how much legitimacy the fans whose teams are left out ascribe to any sort of championship narrative. That's going to be the most fun thing to watch in terms of this season, I think. So keep that in mind as you're watching this weekend, as the ACC and Big 12 get things started on their respective campuses. Keep that in mind later this month when the SEC begins play. Keep that in mind as we wait to see whether or not the Big Ten and or Pac-12 are able to start things up more quickly than a Thanksgiving date or January. It all comes down to legitimacy. How much are you willing to give 2020? That's what I want you all to hold with you as we sign off for this week. And when we're back next Wednesday, I'll remind you of it again because I think it's something that is paramount to how we perceive 2020 and how it will land in the history books decades down the road. Thanks for tuning in. Sorry that John couldn't be here with us all this week, but we're going to try to get him back next week. And until then, for the Saturday Blitz podcast, I'm Zach Bogolke. Thanks for tuning in.